Welcome to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast, helping people who want to improve their health and change their mindset around food so they can live the life they were designed and called for. I am your host, Adrian Delgado, and in this podcast, I'll give you step-by-step action plans to reach your health goals, as well as my favorite recipes I know you and your family will enjoy. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. Today, we have a special guest on our episode. Uh, Today, we are interviewing Katie Hadley. Katie is a functional medicine dietitian and health coach dedicated to dispelling the myth that IBS is a lifetime sentence and you just have to live with it. She provides education and support on how to find and address the root causes of symptoms to get rid of them for good using nutrition, lifestyle, and nutraceuticals. Have you heard the news? We started a brand new membership program called My Nutrition Coach, and you're invited to join. At Bodymetrics, most of our clients come to us through their medical health insurance plan. Unfortunately, most insurances don't offer enough sessions to see big results. And some plans, they don't cover nutrition services at all. At Bodymetrics, we are passionate about helping our clients see results and making nutrition accessible to everyone. That's why we created My Nutrition Coach, a program that offers education and accountability between one-on-one sessions and an affordable option for those without coverage. Inside the membership, you'll get access to weekly teachings, nutrition-focused goals to work on, recipes, a private community page for support, a video resource library, and an opportunity to ask questions to a real dietitian. This helpful program is available right now for only $9.99 a month, or $99 if you sign up annually. But it's important to us to make sure we're a good fit for you, so we're offering a special 30-day free trial if you sign up now. To start your free 30-day trial, simply go to bodymetricshealth.com and click on the Programs tab. There, you will see My Nutrition Coach. Simply click for more information and to join. We can't wait to see you inside the membership. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to talk about this. I am very excited to talk about it too, because we just have so many clients who are struggling and you hit it right, the nail on the head. Like they're just told they have to live with it. And, and that's not the case. No, it's not. And I learned that because of my own journey. I dealt with chronic GI symptoms, aka it's IBS, just live with it for 15 years. And I was told that was going to be the rest of my life. And thankfully, I would not accept that as an answer. And I know that it's really tempting for folks to want to sort of give up on the healing journey because it it feels so defeating. Um, But I was able to really learn more about this idea that IBS is actually a a label for symptoms and it doesn't tell us about what's going on under the surface. And that really empowered me to say, well, okay, what is going on under the surface? And I was able to identify what was happening and then address those imbalances. And now I'm symptom free. And it's not, I want to clarify that it's not because I'm managing my symptoms so well. It's because I've healed my gut. And that is the paradigm shift that we have to move towards when it comes to thinking about IBS and chronic GI symptoms. That's amazing. So we're going to learn all about how to do that today. Uh, So let's back up a little bit. All right. So you mentioned you got into this uh, field of study because of your own personal experience. But for those that may be listening that that aren't as familiar with IBS, um, let's start at the beginning and let's explain what that is. You mentioned it's a collection of symptoms. Exactly. So IBS stands for irritable bowel syndrome, which is different than IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease. That's Crohn's, ulcerative colitis. These are two very different um, diagnoses. IBD, the disease, that tells us about what's going on under the surface. But IBS is labeling our symptoms. And the criteria is really that you have a belly pain, discomfort for a certain amount of time. And it has to either occur with pain and discomfort related to passing a stool, 
um, or a change in frequency of going to the bathroom or a change in your stool consistency. So without having to memorize all that, essentially we're talking about pain, discomfort, and bowel movement changes. So and that can include um, bloating as well. So it can, for many people it does. So for many people, this presents as um, bloating, uh, gas, diarrhea, constipation, pain. And oftentimes when you go to the doctor or even the gastroenterologist and they say, well, we don't really know what's happening. Maybe you've done a colonoscopy and everything looks normal. So it's IBS. But what we fail to acknowledge is that there's a lot more that can be out of balance that we can't see with the eye. So if we do a colonoscopy, that's great because we can rule out some other conditions. But what about if there's an imbalance in the gut microbiome? You can't see that with the eye. What if there's um, inflammation? What if there's leaky gut? These are things that can occur without being able to see it. Another thing that's often tested for is parasites. Um, but there's a lot of parasites and we often don't test for them all. So I'm just throwing out some examples to, to help folks understand what else could be going on and what is the kind of typical route to this diagnosis. Yeah, so it sounds like we need more information and where maybe clients were getting frustrated was the information seeking stopped after the colonoscopy. Yes. So I was diagnosed with IBS at 10, and so I didn't have the opportunity to have a colonoscopy to have parasite testing, but because when I was anxious or nervous, which I was very nervous as a kid, um, it, that would make my symptoms worse. And so that's how I got that diagnosis of IBS. And it wasn't until I was like, I think I was 21 before I was finally able to get uh, a colonoscopy. And at that point, again, quote unquote, everything looks normal. And so the, the diagnosis was reinforced. Well, and I think obviously there is a correlation between our gut and our, our stress levels and anxiety levels. And so for a lot of people, the, the suggestions or the recommendation that they may have received was, well, you need to manage your stress. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I heard. I was told throughout my teen years, because again, I saw so many specialists. It was manage your stress, do some yoga. And I'm like, I do yoga every day. I can't do any more yoga. <laughs> like, Help me here. There's got to be something wrong. And what's really, I mean, you're spot on, right? The, the, the gut and the brain are so connected through many different ways. This is not of question. We know this. But one thing that, that we fail to acknowledge sometimes is that while our mental health can affect our gut health, right? So think about like you're nervous and you get butterflies in your stomach. What's fascinating is that the gut actually sends 10 times more signals to the brain than the brain is sending to the gut. So imagine what's happening. If you can feel what happens when you're nervous or anxious or upset, how that impacts your gut. Imagine what happens when your gut's out of balance, the signals that that is sending to the brain. And we know that when the gut is out of balance, we can have worsening of symptoms for things like depression, anxiety, brain fog, difficulty concentrating because the brain is getting those signals. It's just not as obvious to us that that's what's contributing. That's fascinating, right? When you break it down, it's like, wow, oh my goodness. Okay, now we're getting more information, which, which now we're getting somewhere, right? So, all right, so you said there's we talked about the symptoms that you can experience um, with a diagnosis. So usually we typically, or typically, that's not even a word. We typically categorize IBS into different types. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so essentially we categorize it based on what your symptoms are, either diarrhea, constipation, or mixed, meaning it can go back and forth. And Again, it's a great way to think about it because now we can say, okay, if, if someone says you have IBSD, you have IBSC, meaning diarrhea, constipation, you can think about it and say, okay, I have a general idea of what this person exper is experiencing. But again, what's at the root cause? And interestingly, you can have a, a, a similar root cause with different symptoms. So for example, if you have food sensitivities, if there are certain foods that are triggering for you in your gut, you could absolutely have diarrhea, but you could also have constipation. 
And so it doesn't really, it can give us some insights about where to look, but overall, just knowing that someone is dealing with these symptoms collectively, that's the thing. We have to look at what else is going on, not just within the gut, but also outside of the body, right? We already talked about the gut-brain connection. So someone might have depression or anxiety and okay, we know that's likely a, a part of this puzzle. But what's happening with hair, skin, nails? Because all of these things can give us insights about the specific imbalance. So for example, over 70% of IBS is caused by something called SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's when bacteria overgrows in the small intestine where it really shouldn't be there. Some of the common symptoms of SIBO are rosacea, acne, restless legs, as well as the common IBS symptoms. So when we really look at the person as a whole, and really don't just say, what is your top complaint, but say, tell me everything that's going on, right? This is going to take more than the usual seven minute appointment that we typically have with our healthcare practitioners. Tell me everything that's going on. And let's talk about your past history. When did these symptoms start? What triggers it? What makes you feel better and worse? We can really get a, a, a good understanding without even doing tests. Now, tests can be really helpful. I use them all the time if folks want to do that and they have the budget to do it. But we can get a lot of understanding and insights just based on a conversation and some simple questionnaires. Which is so comforting that we don't have to put our body through a battery of testing. We can actually just have a conversation and start to rule out potential um, triggers. Yeah, exactly. And then as we go about, you know, so, so if we get a big picture of what's going on, then we can say, okay, these are likely things that could be happening. If we can test, great, we can get some specific answers. If not, we can try some different interventions and see what's helping. I think sometimes we forget how smart our body is. Like our body really is smart. And if we're doing something that's making us feel better, okay, that's probably a red flag. If we're doing something that makes us Sorry, did I say that right? If we're doing something that makes <laughs> us feel worse, it's probably a red flag. There we go. If we're doing something that makes us feel better, let's lean into that because your body is, is telling you what's going on. And so we have to be really mindful and really foster this, this mind-body connection and, and pay attention to and validate our own feelings. I know for me, you know, when I was going through this long journey, at some point you just kind of like, cut everything off below the neck. Like I'm feeling these symptoms, but this is just how it's going to be. And I can't pay attention to it. And I just have to live with it. And, you know, it, it's kind of like this coping mechanism, but I actually tell people like lean into it, pay attention. Let's find those connections because that is really the, the gold. So let's say a person either has just been diagnosed with IBS or has been struggling for years and, and just, living with it. We'll, we'll keep going back to that terminology. Um, what is the first step towards healing, not managing healing? Love that. So I use what's called the five R framework, and this is essentially, um, it's a way that we can think about everything as a whole and prioritize what we're going to focus on. So five R is like the letter R. And so the five R's, well, we can go into them more in depth, but it's remove, replace, repair, re-inoculate, and rebalance. And what we need to do is we need to figure out which of these R's are relevant to you. So do you want me to dive into them in depth? Absolutely. I'm ready with pen in hand. I'm excited. Okay. So remove, we need to remove anything that shouldn't be there, right? If you have parasites, we don't really want to think about that. Unfortunately, that was me. I had two different types of parasites. I'll tell you what else I had going on, but that was one of them. So we need to remove any of the bugs that shouldn't be there that are wreaking havoc. We also might need to remove bacterial overgrowth. I also had SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. There are three types. I had two of them. Mind you, this is after 
15 years of trying to figure it out and being told there's nothing wrong. Two parasites, two types of bacterial overgrowth. I also had pathogenic bacteria. The other thing that we sometimes need to remove are food triggers. Unfortunately, that was me too. And all of these things actually go together because when the gut is out of balance, it's like a, it's a whole cascade. It's not just one thing, right? If, if there's, if there's an imbalance in the bacteria, well, then pathogens can overgrow. And if then bacteria overgrows, that can actually lead to food sensitivities. So it's usually not one thing, especially if you've been dealing with it for a while, because the cascade has been going on and, and we're having all these downstream consequences. Okay. So I'm going to interrupt you for one second, because I know questions that people are going to have is, well, how do I know if it's SIBO? How do I know if it's um, these pathogens and how did they get there in the first place? That is a whole can of worms. <laughs> so, okay. How do they get there? A variety of different ways. And we have to look at the whole picture and understand that it's often not just one reason. It's usually a combination starting as early as our birth. You know, if we're born via C-section, our gut actually isn't populated in the way that it is if we're born, you know, naturally. And so already we enter the world with our gut being sort of compromised. And look, that's no... There's absolutely no shaming and blaming. Like, if you need a C-section, you need a C-section, right? Like, that probably saved your life. But we have to acknowledge, okay, so this was one of the things that potentially set us up. And then if we're bottle-fed instead of breastfed, we also missed out on a lot of those good gut bugs. And then if we had to take antibiotics, this was something that was so relevant to me. I took so many antibiotics through elementary school, middle school, high school. Again, antibiotics can save lives, but they wreak havoc on our gut. And then it's, again, this vicious cycle because when our gut's out of balance, our immune system is affected, and then we get sick more, and then we take more antibiotics, and we have to stop this vicious you know, wheel that just keeps spinning. So it can be a variety of different factors that can contribute to this. Actually, food poisoning can also contribute to SIBO, things like low stomach acid which can happen for a variety of different reasons. So it's important. I'm really glad you brought that up. What, what's contributing to this? Because it's one thing to address the issue, but it's another thing to prevent it from happening again. Because if we don't address why it happened, we're not breaking that cycle. You're going to have temporary relief, sure. But what about you a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? It's probably going to come back if you don't understand why it happened and take preventative measures to really keep it at bay. I like that. I like that. All right. So we understand how it can happen. Um, and like you said, not usually just one event, but a culmination of multiple things. Um, all right. And so we can go back to the to the re remove. Right. Yes. I think that's where we left off at. Yes. So remove anything that shouldn't be there, whether those are the bugs in the gut or whether those are food triggers. And when I say remove food triggers, I always want to like dive into this a little bit more because when you when you're dealing with symptoms and you know that food triggers you, it's really challenging to feel this sort of fear around I, am, am I going to feel sick after I eat this? Is this going to, you know, trigger my symptoms? I want to go out to eat with friends, but I, I don't really know what I can have or can't have. And it creates this food fear. And it also creates restriction because, okay, well, these are my safe foods. I'm going to eat these five foods as sort of a means to protect myself. But we know that that's also doing harm, both psychologically and physically, right? Because then we're not getting enough nutrients and we can't enjoy it. And so what I, what I mean when I say remove food triggers is take a really systematic approach to understanding which specific foods are bothering you so that you can take them out and expand your diet everywhere else. So really the goal here is to be able to eat more foods with the confidence that they're not going to trigger you. And this can be hard because you could eat a food on Monday and get sick on Wednesday. So, so there's a lot of nuance that goes into figuring that out. 
The second piece to this is oftentimes you can introduce these foods later on once your gut has healed. There were so many foods that I had to remove years ago, and I've been able to add almost all of them back in, which is really incredible because now I can enjoy them. So remove temporarily, I will say with food. That's what I tell my clients a lot as well. I'm like, listen, I'm hoping this is not a long-term solution. Like this is just a temporary fix until we can restore your normal gut bacteria to where it needs to be. And then guess what? We're going to try to bring these back in because, you know, my goal is not to just take food away from people like that. That wouldn't feel good to me and obviously wouldn't feel good to them. So when you talk about food, um, removal, are we specifically talking about the FODMAP diet here? Or are we just picking and choosing based off of symptoms that we experience? Great question. And I actually do want to talk about low FODMAP diet, uh, because I have some very strong opinions on that. Not all of them are popular. Okay, so in terms of which foods could be triggers, absolutely. Many foods that have the type of carbohydrates that are, you know, shortened as FODMAPs, can be really triggering. But there are also a lot of other foods that tend to be triggers if you have um, a gut imbalance because it's triggering an immune response elsewhere in the body. And so things like dairy, gluten, uh, corn actually for some people, sugar, alcohol. So many of these other foods that aren't necessarily FODMAP related. So it does require some digging, like you said, based on how um, how someone already knows. Because sometimes people will know, I, I know that garlic and onion can't do them, will make me sick. Okay, great. That's a good starting place. Uh, but then we do this, this systematic elimination and then introduce one at a time every few days. And the way I explained it is if you're sitting on 10 tacks, right, all these food sensitivities, and you take one out probably not going to hurt any less. But if you take them all out and then add one in, you're going to say, oh, that was it. And so that's a much more efficient way to understand what are the food triggers. The problem with the low FODMAP diet is that oftentimes people use this really broadly. So they'll take out all of the foods. So they'll go online and they'll say, okay, what are high FODMAP foods? And they'll just take all those foods out. Well, so that's a lot of foods that you're taking out and probably more than half of them, if not more, probably aren't triggers for you. And so what tends to happen is it can help with symptoms, but what we need to do then is that second piece, add them back in and figure out which ones are causing the symptoms. Because when we have a, a, a narrow diet and we don't have a lot of diversity, then our gut bacteria actually becomes less diverse. And so this is one of the key principles to having a healthy gut is have a diverse diet because the bacteria feed on what you feed them. And if they're only getting 10 foods, you're going to lose a lot of those really great bugs that are actually helping to protect your gut. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes see my clients, they're like, well, my doctor gave me this paper and said, don't eat these foods. Yeah. And that's it. I was like, well, <laughs> There's a, actually a, a systematic way to, to do this and follow this. But I mean, it's, it's helpful in the beginning because they do see some relief, but then they're like, oh, this is just now how I have to eat forever. And like you said, usually we can get at least half, if not more, back in the diet right away through trial. Yeah. And then it, once you do that journey of healing the gut, you can probably add more, if not all of them back in. Uh, I couldn't eat garlic and onion for many, many years. And now I literally eat them all the time because I'm trying to make up for the years that I couldn't eat them. And that's not uncommon. In fact, with SIBO FODMAP foods, high FODMAP foods are usually really, really triggering. And so you asked previously, well, how do you know if some of these things are going on? Outside of testing, again, using some of the symptoms that you're experiencing and if FODMAP foods are triggering, you might want to think about looking deeper at SIBO. Mm -hmm. But you can have that checked through, like you said, through a test. So you can go to your doctor, they can, they can do diagnostic testing and confirm whether or not you have it. 
Yep, absolutely. So SIBO testing is something that I do a lot in my practice. I'm a SIBO certified practitioner and it's a breath test actually, which is fascinating if you're a nerd like me because the bacteria like feed on the sugar that you give it and then they produce gases and those can be measured in your breath. How cool is that? I know. <laughs> like no needles, no yep, anesthesia. Exactly. It's amazing. So I will say that SIBO is... There's so much research on SIBO dating back decades, and we don't have to go into it. But essentially, I say that to, to make the point that despite how much literature we have and how well established this field is, a lot of practitioners actually are never taught about SIBO. I've met gastroenterologists who said I, I was never taught about it in school. So it it's not on the sort of typical uh, list of diagnostics for GI symptoms. I don't know why. Um, it's just not. So what I would encourage people is if if this is a route you're looking to go down, please work with someone who, who is familiar with SIBO. I cannot tell you how many tests I've looked at from people who have done SIBO tests with practitioners who just weren't really familiar with it. The test was done wrong. The wrong test was ordered. The interpretation was wrong. I mean, just lots of issues with it. And the last thing you want to do is rule out something that you actually have. I mean, how awful would that be if you actually have SIBO, you think you don't, and then now you go down all these different rabbit holes when the answer is right there. Oh. Yeah, yeah, very frustrating. All right, so we're removing the foods. We're removing um, maybe even, I'm trying to think, are there specific lifestyle things that we need to remove as well? So we'll get to the lifestyle piece. Oh, so okay. that's kind of everything within remove pathogens and food triggers. Okay. Then we have replace. First of all, we need to replace nutrients because when our gut isn't functioning optimally, we could be eating an incredible diet, but if we can't digest and absorb those foods properly, then we're actually not getting all the nutrients from it. And so we need to replace any nutrients if, if there are nutritional deficiencies. So that's one thing. The second thing is replacing any sort of digestive factors that might be missing. So for most people, we don't have to think about this because you eat and things just work fine and great. But if you've ever experienced bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, all the things we've been talking about, Part of that is likely because your body's having a hard time digesting the food because you're missing certain things. So for example, if we have low stomach acid, then it's going to feel like when you eat a high protein meal, like when you eat a, a piece of meat or, um, you know, just a bigger meal, it's going to feel like it's just sitting there or you get full really fast. Or you get bloating and gaps right when you finish your meal. These are all signs of low stomach acid, which can be a result of an imbalance. Once the food gets further along into the intestines, we need enzymes to break down the food. And again, if there's damage to the gut, those enzymes aren't being produced properly. And so then we might get bloating, gas, pain two, three hours after a meal. Again, this is why it's so important to get really granular about what those symptoms are because they give us insights. And so what we can do is we can actually replace those things that might be missing to help you digest better. The beauty of this is it helps with your symptoms immediately and you're actually going to be able to get nutrients better. So we're addressing an issue. And if it worked, it told us, great, that was missing. So over time, once the gut is healed, we can take those things back out and you'll notice, oh, I don't even need them anymore because my gut is producing them on its own now. So supplements, and we can talk more about this later on, but supplements need to be used very, very carefully, thoughtfully. We, I think we, because supplements, you can just get them over the counter and there's all this hype around like, oh, this vitamin or mineral or adaptogen is like all the rage. It's great to know that, but everyone's body is unique and taking supplements willy nilly without knowing why or how or the quality can actually be detrimental. So I always recommend if you're using supplements therapeutically, 
which can be so helpful, please work with a knowledgeable healthcare provider so that you can come up with a plan around what's going to work best for you instead of just grabbing whatever's on the shelf. Yeah, so we're not just gonna go grab any enzymes online to replace. Ideally not, no. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I may, I was writing some notes down and I may have missed what you said here, but when you have low stomach acid, is that a supplement that you're taking to correct that or is that just a, a dietary change? So you can absolutely take a supplement for that to replace the stomach acid that's missing and help you better digest those foods. There are also certain lifestyle strategies that you can implement. For example, smelling, it sounds so like kindergarten, but it's very true, smelling your food, chewing thoroughly. These actually help tell your gut, okay, we're about to receive food, get ready, and you can produce more stomach acid. So this kind of like zombie eating that we can sometimes do where we're eating in front of the TV or we're eating while we're working or while we're driving and we're not paying attention and we're stressed and all the things, that can actually inhibit our body producing these factors on its own. So mindful eating is really important. Also bitter foods stimulate that, that stomach acid production. So whether that's eating some bitter greens at the beginning of a meal or actually using like Swedish bitters, you can drop Swedish bitters on your tongue. Um, most people think bitters are just for cocktails, but look at this, they have a, <laughs> a better purpose too. Um, dropping bitters on your tongue stimulates stomach acid, produ acid production as well. And there are many other things. So absolutely, basically everything that we're talking about we, we definitely want to consider lifestyle, dietary um, changes, all of the things that can be done to, to help. Yeah. I just love what you said so much because that whole mindfulness piece that, you know, we as dietitians are always trying to hammer, you know, into our clients, like sit down, savor, like actually enjoy your meals. Like there is a, a literal physiological response that happens in your body that's beyond, you know, just because I want you to taste your food, like there are actual chemical reactions that happen in our body based on us sitting down and smelling and enjoying and chewing like, I don't know, I, I just I love that so much. I think that's so cool. <laughs> Sometimes it really is the simple things that make a really big difference. And, you know, when I talk about oh, eat lots of different foods, people are like, okay, great. But I'm like, no, it's diversity and the diversity feeds the gut bacteria. Like there are reasons behind it, but if we can just distill it down, because I know it can feel really overwhelming when you're going on this journey and you're like, there's so much information out there, right? We're not in a time where there's lack of information, but we have a lack of personalized support and personalized recommendations. And so when you're dealing with all this information, I don't want anyone to ever feel like they're in the information overload where they're just kind of stuck and like, where do I even start? Because these little tiny nuggets, right? Smelling your food, chewing thoroughly, not restricting your diet, you know, these things can be so powerful, not just in how you're feeling in the moment, but having a long-term impact as well on your health. Yeah. You're making me think of, of the recommendation a lot of people make, which is eat the colors of the rainbow, right? Exactly. Not because we want you to color pictures and put them on your refrigerator. There, there's a reason beyond that. We actually want you to get a variety of phytonutrients and polyphenols and tannins and all these really great nutrients that are going to support a healthy gut microbiome. And so, you know, the, the recommendations might feel simplistic, like you said, almost elementary or kindergarten, but there is a, I promise a very, um, we'll say, what do I want to say here? Um, a PhD level of science that goes behind these elementary recommendations. Exactly. And look, if you're a nerd like I am, and it sounds like you are too, uh, <laughs> then you can absolutely dive into it all. But if that feels like too much, like just let that go. Focus on the action items because we're, look, we're all trying to do the adulting thing and we have enough to deal with. So sometimes it can be a lot to add another thing to our plate, pun intended, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, focusing, focusing on the action items and just doing what you can do. I mean, one or two changes 
can really make a big difference. And I think sometimes we think like, well, if I'm not doing all the things all the time, and not just really to gut health, but just generally for health, right? If I'm not doing all these things, like, am I really doing anything? Yes, you are. Doing more absolutely compounds, but it has to be a stepwise fashion if you're making these lifestyle changes, because this is what's wrong with diet culture, right? We go this like crazy extreme and then it's like, okay, well, that wasn't, that didn't work, right? That wasn't sustainable. And same thing can actually happen too if we try to take on a bunch of healthy changes at once, especially if you don't have a lot of support, then you're going to fall off that wagon. So just focus on the couple things that you can do right now. And then once you're feeling good with those, add on some more. Yeah. You actually made me uh, think of another question. I know we're going through these R's, so hopefully it's okay for me to go down a little bit, rabbit, little bit of a rabbit hole real fast. Um, do you think that some people's triggers can also be a result of past dieting attempts? So trying some of these, you know, um, fad diets that are out there that are really restrictive or have you eating in a very specific way, can that also contribute to gut issues? Absolutely. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with that when we're going through their history, okay, I had some little GI issue, you know, I had some bloating when I was a kid and then it went away and then I had some this and then I did this really restrictive diet. I did keto and I tried to do, you know, I'm just using that as an example. I tried to do keto for six months or some people it's, I developed an eating disorder for a few years, but that restriction and the stress around that restriction and everything else that went into that and the lack of diversity and nutrients after that, it's, I've never been well since. Yeah. And so again, as dietitians, our job is to not only help you with your short-term goal, but also make sure on the long-term you remain healthy And so I know sometimes our clients get frustrated with us because our general recommendations are not the flashy, glitzy, fad diets that are out there that are going to get you results in three weeks, because we know ultimately that is going to harm you long term. And so our recommendations aren't as flashy. And and that's where I think some frustration happens. But it's ultimately because we have your long term health as our main focus. And we can see what would happen in the future if we let you do those short-term things. I mean, obviously everybody's going to make their own decisions, but just as a little plug there, like we're looking at big picture a lot of times where sometimes our clients are only looking at the next six weeks. Absolutely. And we also have to remember that the information that The information that we often find online and social media and the trends, not only are they often overblown in terms of focusing on one benefit and extrapolating that to everyone, right? Intermittent fasting is a great example. Like everyone and their dog is doing intermittent fasting right now. And we actually know that it's not great for every single body, right? So not only are are the it's twofold. It's the, the benefits are often like, whoa, this food is the super food. Okay. Well, it might be really nutrient rich. That's awesome. Included in your diet, but like, it's probably not going to solve all your problems. Right. And then it's not individualized again. Intermittent fasting is a great example for many people that actually works in contradiction to their health. So I guess it's great that we I say, I guess it's great. That doesn't sound very convincing. It's it's great that we have, again, so much information, but please, please take all of that with a grain of salt and understand that it, it's not a one size fits all. And there isn't the one magic thing that's going to do it all either. Yeah. I have to try a couple different things. All right. So we've removed, we've replaced... Now comes the repair. Yes. And mind you, this is not necessarily in this specific order. Again, it depends on you as an individual, what's going on in your body, what what kind of support do you need? So repair. This refers to the gut lining. The gut lining is actually just a single layer of cells. And that's separating what's in your gut, the food you eat and your microbiome from literally everything else in your body. You can imagine how delicate that is. And so Often this can become damaged, whether that's due to 
oh, medication or stress or actually really intense exercise does this lack of sleep. Um, you know, the, the imbalance in the gut microbiome, there are so many different things that can negatively affect our gut lining. And what can happen is the cells can sort of become leaky, if you will. And this is called intestinal permeability. And when this happens, not only can you get a lot of the really unpleasant GI symptoms, but this is what leads to the food sensitivities. Not to go too far into the weeds on how it happens, but I think this is fascinating. Essentially, what happens is protein molecules from the food get through the gut lining because it's leaky. And the body says, uh, excuse me, what's this? <laughs> this isn't supposed to be here. And so then we have this big immune response and our body is now trying to, you know, get rid of this threat. And so these symptoms can be not only GI related, but they could be headaches, body aches and pains, fatigue. I mean, you name it it can happen. And so we really need to repair the gut lining in order to calm down that immune system, be able to reintroduce foods later, and of course, get rid of those symptoms. So that's what the R and that R of repair stands for. All right. Is there any like practical specific things that we can do to repair or is it just time? Both. I mean, if you're not doing anything to help it, time isn't going to help it, right? Because we got here for a reason, right? Nothing changes if nothing changes. So supporting your gut health overall can absolutely help to heal the gut lining. There are specific nutraceuticals that can help, but also going back to the lifestyle piece. So doing thing, doing adopting a lifestyle that overall fosters gut health. So getting enough sleep. Oh my gosh. Like we live in such a culture right now where, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Like, oh, I only got four hours of sleep last night. Like why do we idealize this? It's a little bit gross. Um, mm -hmm. But lack of sleep is so detrimental for the gut because during that time, it's when a lot of these reparative, restorative healing processes are happening. So getting enough sleep, getting the right amount of movement. Uh, I noticed... I, I'm the kind of person who likes to dive into something and really get into it. And then I'm like, okay, that was fun. You know, so marathons was, was one thing or, you know, endurance cycling. And I noticed that when I started doing this, when I was training for a marathon or I was training for a century, right. I had this flare up in my gut symptoms and I had to make the decision of how far do I take this? Because I know it's having a negative effect. But on the flip side, not moving very much, not exercising can also be detrimental. So finding that sweet spot for you in terms of getting regular movement and plenty of good exercise. Yeah. So, so that's another one. Stress. Again, we keep coming back to the mind-body connection. And when we can, when, when, we're, when we're in this state of fight, flight, freeze, we're having a hormonal cascade and this is not the time when our body's like repairing and like getting ready for, you know, a couple months from now and cleaning up the junk and all that stuff. This is a time when our body's like, go, 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 go. And right. We have all of our blood moves to our arms and our legs and it's not in our gut. It's there so that we can fight or run or whatever we need to do. And so that impacts the gut's ability to heal and really do its job properly. And so these, again, going back to the not sexy lifestyle factors, these are the things that make a really big difference, both for the repair part, but also for the other aspects as well. Yeah. So you fight for sleep, right? Yes. <laughs> um, fight for that because it is more than, I, I saw this posted somewhere. It said sleep is a right, not a reward. And so yes, I love yeah, we use it as a reward. Like, well, once I get my stuff done, then I can go to bed. And it's like, no, no, because nighttime and sleeping time is when our guts do all its repair work. And so by holding back on sleep, you're really holding back on your body's ability to heal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's for the gut, but it's also for everything else. I mean, when we're resting, when we're sleeping, our brain gets this bath of what we call lymphatic fluid, which is so important for our brain health long term for fighting off things like cognitive decline and dementia and, and all of that. So it's 
it's really down to a cellular level. And most people, in my experience, and the research shows this, most people don't realize how much their lack of good quality sleep is really negatively impacting their health, um, their their brain function, their decision-making, their memory. It's really crazy, actually, when you look at the studies of how people drive and tasks that people do when they're running on a small amount of sleep. And what's crazy is they rate themselves as like, oh, no, I did great. But they actually did really poorly. And to me, that is the scariest thing of all because we're not even realizing what a low level we're functioning at. Mm -hmm. Not to mention cravings for the foods that are also (laughs) negatively impacting your gut biome. One hundred percent. Absolutely. Our hunger, our fullness, that's all hormonal related. And when we're not getting good sleep or when we're stressed or any of these other factors are out of balance, those hormones are really interrupted. And so we can be getting cravings for, like you said, foods that maybe aren't the best for our gut, sugar, alcohol, things like that. Yeah. Katie, I am loving this conversation so much because it is just practical Um, You're giving such great tips on things that we can do right away to make changes, but that are going to have impactful changes, not just like little tips that, yeah, you could try it, but like these are real life things that you could do. So I just wanted to stop and just tell you how much I'm appreciating this conversation. Thank you. I I appreciate when someone is loves this topic as much as I do, because I know we don't have three hours, but we could do a whole three hour episode on this. But for the sake of time, I'll go through the other two a little bit quicker, because again, we've already touched on so many of these, these issues already. So the fourth R is re-inoculate. And that sounds like a fancy word, but we're literally just talking about putting in the good bacteria. Probiotics are all the rage right now, but you know, you can actually get probiotics from the foods that you eat fermented foods are literally foods with the bacteria alive and well. And when you eat those foods, they help to populate your gut as well as decrease inflammation and help with the repairing and all the things. So we want to re-inoculate in a way that creates this really balanced microbiome. It's not necessarily these are good bugs and these are bad bugs. It's how is our community thriving and living together and keeping each other in check. A lot of people are surprised to learn that E. coli is actually a part of many people, most people's gut microbiome. What? What do you mean E. coli is pathogenic? Well, not in the right amount. And so we want to re-inoculate to keep this balance uh, steady. Do you recommend that anybody working with, um, with IBS take a probiotic? And if so, there's lots of different options out there. Which one do we choose? Good questions. So I don't recommend just taking a probiotic willy-nilly because they do have specific strains for specific purposes. There are lots of different types. They're not all created equal. And if you have certain imbalances, taking a probiotic too soon at the wrong time can actually make your symptoms worse. So Going back to that individualized approach and knowing why and how you're going to be taking a probiotic and being very specific about it, I think is really important. Um, If you're not having support in this journey, go to fermented foods. That's to me, there's, unless you're not tolerating them for some reason, they trigger migraines or something like that for you. Again, individualized approach. I'm going to sound like a broken record here. These can be really helpful and nourishing foods for the gut. So let's let's recap on what they are. So we've got sauerkraut. That's a common one. I'll let you give more examples. Yeah, sauerkraut. And I'm sure I'm sure you're going to think of things that I don't think of. So yeah, sauerkraut, kimchi is a great one. Um, any kind of yogurt. So if you can do dairy, great. If you can't do dairy, that's okay too. Um, looking at looking on the label and seeing if it has what they call live active cultures. Um, so yogurt is great. Miso, which is a fermented soybean paste. Uh, you can actually get it not made with soybeans if you don't tolerate soy. Uh, you can do like garbanzo beans. Um, so miso is another great one. Homemade kombucha. 
Uh, sometimes the ones we buy in the store don't don't really have that much bacteria, but definitely the homemade kind. And the store-bought ones do tend to have a lot of sugar. <laughs> yes, they they absolutely can. They absolutely can. Yeah. Um, kefir, right? That's another yep. one. Or kefir, however pe people pronounce yep. it. Yep, exactly. Um, okay. Yeah, I like this because again, now we're fostering the whole diversity in your diet. So you're reaping benefits other than just probiotics. Yes, 100%. We did an interview with a gastroenterologist um, and he recommended spore-based probiotics or sporebiotics, I guess is what he called them. Do, what are your opinions or do you have one on that? So yes, the spore probiotics are almost a newer sort of version, if you will. There's a lot more research coming out about them and really just showing how powerful they are and how resilient they are. Because when they go into the spore state, they can survive so much. They can survive heat and stomach acid and all of these things and then confer those benefits to, to us. Um, I don't necessarily, though, use spore for everything. Again, it just depends on what the scenario is. Um, I'm, using, I'm being kind of vague here, but short answer is yes, they are great. And I don't just use them exclusively because I think the other ones have great implications as well. And then I also heard somewhere, somewhere along the lines, someone recommended only taking probiotics for six months and then trialing off of them. I have some clients that they were told by their doctor to take a probiotic and they've been taking it for like eight years now. Like at what point is it not necessary? Again, individualized. I know that's part of it, but is there a time where, you know, is it once you're on a probiotic, you're always on it or is that something you cycle? So the research shows us that we while we can start seeing benefits right away, when we are taking a probiotic, you might notice two weeks in, you're already feeling better. The benefits really peak at two to three months. So minimum, if we're going to be doing it and we're finding benefits, stick with it for that long. Once we talk about longer term, hopefully we've been doing these other things, addressing the other R's, right? And then you can always try taking it out or decreasing the amount and seeing how your body responds. I've never read anything or seen in the literature or even experienced with anyone negative effects of taking them more than six months. So I'd be interested to hear where that recommendation came from. But I think that supplement burden, supplement overload can be real. And so if you're feeling like, gosh, I really just wish I didn't have to take these supplements long term, you probably don't have to if you've been addressing what's going on under the surface. But I wouldn't really see a scenario in which that's harmful if it's vibing well with you and your body. Great. Thank you for that. All right. I know you were trying to get through these R's quickly and I keep interrupting <laughs> you. So I'm going to let you go for the fifth R and, and I'll keep my mouth quiet. <laughs> so the fifth R is rebalance. This is the lifestyle. This is everything we've already talked about. This goes back to the idea that if we don't rebalance our lifestyle, our environment, and these factors that contributed to the imbalances to begin with, then we're not going to be able to move forward and leaving these behind. So we need to make sure that we're making those sustainable changes and that they're they're realistic for us and they're addressing why this happened to begin with. Mm -hmm. Katie, this is amazing. Thank you so much for walking us through this. Cause I, again, it was so helpful. You explained so many things that, and just addressed questions that hopefully I, I was able to, to think like a person who's struggling with this and be like, yeah, but what about this? And what should I do here? Like you were just so kind and generous with your recommendations. So we're just really appreciative of your time. Oh my gosh. Again, thank you for having me. I could continue talking about this, but for the sake of people's brains not exploding, maybe we, <laughs> maybe we can start to start to wrap it up here. But yeah, I do. I do hope this is helpful. Um, in both answering some questions that, that people have already around you know, probiotics and, and things like that, but also expanding the way we think about IBS and the way we think about GI symptoms and understanding that if you have symptoms, 
They are literally that. They're a sign of something going on under the surface. So the idea that everything is fine, everyone has GI issues, just live with it. I would encourage you to really rebel against that and find that support, whether that's just, you know, information that you're reading online or someone that you're working with personally, but, but find that education and support to help you identify those root causes so that you can get rid of IBS. I'm living proof that just because you've had it for even decades, you don't have to have it long-term. I've worked with folks in their seventies who have been dealing with IBS for literally as long as they can remember and are now symptom-free. So don't lose hope even when it feels really discouraging because I know how miserable it is, but you really deserve to feel at your best and not have those symptoms holding you back. Yeah. Katie, where can we learn more about you and the work that you're doing? So my website is the best place. It's katiehadley.com. And my first name is spelled a little funny. It's like Kaylee, but with a T. (laughs) So katiehadley.com. Um, and on there, I have some more resources, some blog posts, um, more discussions around finding root causes. Um, and you can also find me on social media at Katie Hadley. All right. Awesome. All right, Katie. So we end all our conversations with a recipe. So I know you have prepared for us a gut friendly recipe. So we're excited to, to learn more about that. So I wanted to share my favorite breakfast and I already ate it this morning. So sorry, I don't have it to to show. Um, But my favorite gut-friendly breakfast includes a fermented food and fiber because fiber feeds the bacteria in our gut. So you have the bacteria because you're eating the fiber or because you're eating the fermented food, you have the fiber, which is feeding the bacteria and then diversity and color, like you said. So for me, that looks like yogurt. My personal favorite is cashew yogurt, but there's dairy-based, there's almond-based, there's coconut, unsweetened yogurt. And then I add lots of seeds on top. So hemp seeds, most people don't know this, but hemp seeds are really rich in protein. Just three tablespoons has 10 grams. And so I'll I'll add hemp seeds, I'll add ground flaxseed or chia seeds, uh, maybe some nuts on top. And then some fresh fruit brings in that sweetness, that color. Berries, as probably most people know who are listening to this, are chock full of antioxidants and so many healing properties. And so I really look at the bowl and I just kind of ask myself, how can I get more color in this bowl? And so if you have the yogurt and you had some seeds and you have some nuts and you have some fruit, you can easily get, I'm not even kidding here, 10 plus different types of foods in that bowl. And we want to aim for 30 different foods a week for optimal gut health. And you can literally get that just for breakfast and know that you're doing all of the good things for all of the good bugs in your gut. I love it. It's simple. It's easy. um, And you can mix and match based on the season. So, you know, everybody's always asking for those quick go-to breakfasts. And this, this is it. This is where you get all the nutrients. It literally takes like 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you make your own yogurt as well or do you buy that? Oh, I do not. I do not. I've tried once or twice and I'm going to be honest and I haven't had great success yet. And uh, you know what? Sometimes convenience is where it's at. So there's a couple different brands that I really like. And I think that's, I think it's nice to have options. So for people who are making their own yogurt, good on you. Do you make your own yogurt? Yeah, I'm I'm all all about convenience as well. I know some people are disappointed. They're like, oh, you don't make that? I'm like, oh, no, no. At the end of the day, I'm just trying to get it done. So totally. I think it's it's one of those things where if it energizes you and you're excited about it, like totally do it. And also, if you're like, no way, that's totally fine, too. Yeah. Thank goodness for other people that are passionate and making it for us. Yes, 100%. All right, Katie. Well, thank you again for your time and and all your knowledge. I think, I know I learned some things today. I know our listeners are going to have learned a lot of things today as well. And um, and just, just can't say it enough. Just thank you for everything. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure.
All right, guys, that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, have a great week. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nourish Eat Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricshealth.com. You can also find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at bodymetricshealth. The book Nourish Eat Repeat is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrian Delgado, and I'll see you next week.